0: This is the Flatlining
1: Podcast.
0: Americans pay the highest prescription drug prices on earth. A study last year by Rand Corporation reported that Americans pay 255% of what the British pay and 258% of what the French pay for the exact same prescriptions. For brand name originator drugs, the price differential was even higher, 349%. Americans are paying more for medicine because we don't have a free market globally. Since other countries have price controls and we don't, drug companies segment their markets and charge higher prices here to make up for the price caps they face everywhere else. That's how drug manufacturers
2: maximize their profits. And what I would argue, and this is an important point to make, one out of four people who get a prescription from their doctor, Senator Burr, cannot afford to fill those prescriptions. How many of those people die? So you can have all the great drugs in the world, but if you can't afford to buy them, they're useless to you. So I don't accept the idea. We have very strong language in this bill to make sure that the products coming into this country are safe uh, and consistent with what the FDA uh, has done for years. Well, I always wanted to go to a Bernie rally. Now I feel like I've been there.
0: I'm going to support Senator Sanders' First Amendment on reimportation.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with me is the President and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you doing today? I'm good, sir. Thank you. I hope you are. I am, and I'm excited that we're going to be doing another Headlines uh, episode today, and we're going to be talking about a couple of different things, including price transparency rules for hospitals as well as we're gonna talk a little bit about HSAs and then a weird alliance that we saw in Congress last week between Bernie Sanders and Rand Paul, two of probably the most diametrically opposed people I can think of in the uh, in the Senate right now. But of course, we did want to uh, wrap up our discussion last week uh, because we had some technical difficulties and had to cut the program off early. Uh, we were talking a bit about the current economic situation um, and as we predicted last week, the Fed did raise interest rates by three quarters of a percent, and we were getting ready to talk about how the current economic situation is going to affect providers and uh, other healthcare personnel going forward. And Ron, I wanted you mentioned something about rural hospitals that I I think is important for people to hear because rural hospitals do serve a significant portion of the country.
3: Yeah, what I was talking about, and this applies to a lot of. Physician practices as well. Um, rural hospitals are in a really, you know, bad position whenever inflation strikes like this because they face significant increases in the cost of providing care. Nursing costs are going up. All labor costs are going up. Everything from your check-in person to your, you know, custodial to food service to nursing, et cetera. So they've got to pay these higher wages or increases but they have a very limited ability to increase the price of their product because, first of all, a huge amount of what they provide gets paid for by a government source, Medicare and Medicaid, and you can't just increase how much you get paid by them. And the rest of it is through an insurance contract where the rates are set by contract and you can't just increase those. So unlike a gas station where if the price of the next tanker of gas that comes in goes up, you just raise the price at the pump automatically, Hospitals can't do that. The other thing to understand about hospitals is, and there's been a lot of talk lately about airlines just canceling flights because they can't Mm -hmm. get enough labor, enough pilots, et cetera. Well, think about if the hospital just on Monday said, hey, guys, um, we're really not open today. um, So everybody who's here has to quit, go home and and there's no emergency services because we just can't find enough staff. Well, they really can't do that. So they're forced to sort of almost outbid for labor prices because of that staffing. And so the labor costs are really hitting them harder than anywhere else, and they've got no ability to increase price. So there's gonna be incredible stress provided on rural hospitals, and to a large degree, physician practices. And it's gonna be really questionable about how they keep their doors open, um, or if, if quality of care suffers because they're not able to staff with as many people, or they bring people in with less experience, et cetera. I mean, it's a real serious concern. And, and we could see rural hospitals just start failing. Um, that's not inconceivable.
1: So with that kind of dire prediction on the line, it, you know, if things stay the way they are, and there's no pay bump, what's the way to get a pay bump to hospitals? Because I know the federal government has bailed out airlines on a number of occasions, mm-hmm. they've bailed out the auto industry on a number of occasions. How do you bail out independent hospitals?
3: Well, so the easiest thing to do is also the hardest thing political to do. Mm -hmm. Just increase the amount of money that Medicare and Medicaid pays them. I mean, the federal government could tomorrow suddenly make all hospitals very, you know, comfortable with what they're doing. Just increase the rate for Medicare and Medicaid. The problem is, A, you got to get that through Congress. Right. Difficult. And B, the other problem is you got to have the CBO score it and what it does to the 10-year deficit. So in the middle of a midterm election, there's nobody that wants to be straddled with, they just increase the deficit by X trillions of dollars. Um, and it's not the right time for bipartisanship in the middle of a midterm election. So it's easy to, to do conceptually, you just raise the number. It's impossible to get done in this kind of political environment. So
1: I guess with that in mind, as we, as we wrap up this discussion and move on to our new stuff for this week, what hope is there for hospitals and healthcare providers going forward
3: uh, in the next, say, two or three years? Well, the big hope is that inflation subsides, mm-hmm. that the, you know, the um, Fed increases interest rates even more um, and, gets, and gets inflation under control quickly because um, that will help with the labor market price etc the other thing is a number of hospitals many hospitals have some reserves that they've got in investments endowments etc and raising the the interest rate will help because it'll it'll increase the return on those investments as well so that's the big hope if we find ourselves in a um, an economy that um, the fed can't control we continue to see um, inflation go up and regardless of the interest rates and the labor market doesn't subside from a from a price standpoint then they're in serious trouble and then they're going to look to see um, hospital consolidation bigger or well-off hospitals will start continuing to buy smaller rural hospitals um, or we'll see significant pressure on the federal government for some sort of a bailout
1: well we'll keep that in mind as we as we're moving forward we're going to transition now into what we were planning on talking about this week but we're going to be sticking with hospitals for a little bit um and i want to talk about a report that uh came out in the last few weeks from NBC News, and then it was um, written about by Cynthia Fisher, who's with the, um, I believe she's with the Patients for uh, Choice, or it's, it's an organization along those lines. And while you're, while you're speaking, I'll get her correct title in there. Uh, but it's about the rule that came out during the Affordable Care Act regarding price transparency for hospitals. And the first thing I wanna ask you about, Ron, is why do we need price transparency for hospitals?
3: Well, the theory behind price transparency is it's an important piece to make sure you have a competitive marketplace. You know, we know that you can, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, Price transparency became very easy in the airline industry when things like Travelocity came about. Mm -hmm. You know, before that, there was price transparency, but it was hard because you had to call each airline. How much for your ticket for here to here and then call somebody else. It was difficult. When the internet and websites and Travelocity came, it became easy. I could put in, you know, I want to fly from Raleigh to Detroit. I want to do it on this Friday, et cetera. And it shows me everybody's flights and their prices. That makes things more competitive and drives down costs. That's sort of economics 101. Um, By the way, just as an aside, since Travelocity was developed and put online, every single airline except one has gone bankrupt at least once. Hmm. And the only one that hasn't is Southwest and they're not on Travelocity. So, um, but <laughs> it, it makes things, it makes prices more competitive, et cetera. That's why we, we sort of need price transparency. And that's uh, how it is supposedly to help the consumer. The other thing to understand is even with insurance, most people have some amount that they have to pay. Right. And a lot of times that's based on the cost of the service coinsurance where I get to pay 20% of the bill, Mm -hmm. well, for me to know how much I'm going to owe, it's kind of nice to know how much the bill is going to be. Right. Um, So that's the whole rationale behind it. So how did they try to roll this out with the Affordable Care Act? So there was a provision in the Affordable Care Act that made hospitals um, produce price transparency, a way that people could understand and see ahead of time how much their bill is going to be at the hospital for various services. Um, it was supposed to be made available in an easy-to-see online thing, and it was supposed to be effective in 2021. Um, that was sort of part of um, the Affordable Care Act that got passed.
1: So tell me how um, it helps. Well, we've talked about how it helps patients. Does it help providers at all, or does it put them in a situation where all of a sudden they may be losing I don't want to say customers, but they may be losing patients, which is where they get the primary of their revenue.
3: Yeah, in general, and I mean, there are some facilities who have adopted it. In general, this is not something the hospital industry wanted or, or wants at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, one of them is, they, you know, if you are in an industry where um, people can't see price transparency, it makes competition less of an issue. And and that's a good place to be. Again, the airlines didn't necessarily want Travelocity. And case in point, they all went bankrupt after it happened. Right. Um, and so, no, the hospitals didn't want to see this happen. It wasn't something that helps them at all. Um, it, more than it makes their life difficult, it's complicated and convoluted, which is why most of them have sort of ignored it.
1: Mm-hmm. New research has shown that only about 6% of hospitals are complying with that rule. Um, they were given roughly nine eight or nine years to to come up to par with this because as the affordable Care Act was rolled out in in 2012 2013 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this rule didn't go in effect until january of 2021 why why did it has it taken so long given that or why are there so few i guess rather why is there so few hospitals that are compliant given that it's taken so long to given that they had such a large window of time to um to to get up to speed
3: I think there's really three reasons for that. Okay. First of all, it's much more complicated for hospitals to have price transparency than it is for airlines on Travelocity. The product that they sell is incredibly complex. For example, everything, every service a physician can do has a numeric code for it, a CPT code. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a simple office visit has several different codes depending on how long you're in the doctor's office or how much they do. You know, you've got heart surgery, you've got delivering babies, everything a doctor can do has a numeric code. There are over 10,000 numeric codes for things a doctor could do that are different. So if you're a hospital and where the vast majority of those things could happen, I've got to have a price for literally 10,000 services that could happen. now. It's further complicated because the consumer wants to say, where it's like for me, it's easy to say, well, I want to fly from Raleigh to Detroit. When a a consumer comes in and says, hey, how much is an emergency room visit? The answer is, well, it depends on what happens. Mm -hmm. How long are you here? What do they do? What do they order? Is there labs involved, radiology? Did we do sutures or some procedure? So it's not that easy. Um, It'd be a little bit like me calling Delta Airlines and saying, hey, how much is an airline ticket? And they go, where are you gonna fly? When are you gonna fly? Right. What, what seat do you want? Do you want first class or? Um, so it's incredibly complicated and hard to do from that perspective. Secondly, they don't want that information out in the open. Um, they like the fact that it was somewhat uncompetitive and that's helped you know raise cost. Mm-hmm. Finally, if it becomes transparent, there are some difficult questions that they're gonna get attacked on that they've gotta answer and complicated questions. We all know the whole, well, how much, why does it cost $10 in a hospital to get an aspirin? You know, when people look at their charge structure and -hmm. and how come a MRI in a hospital costs $3,000 and, and that same service at a, at an outpatient clinic offer costs 500. Um, and those are really hard questions to answer because they're, they're not easy to answer, you know, and then the hospital's got to get into, well, yes, we're overcharging you for your aspirin because of all the people that come in here that we don't get paid for. And we've talked about this before. Well, we have to overcharge the people with insurance because the government doesn't pay us even what our cost is for that same thing. Right. So it gets into a myriad of of really difficult conversations. So I think those are the three reasons. It's hard to do. I really didn't want to do it. And I don't want to have to answer the questions if I do it, especially if I'm the first one to do it. And I think the last thing is the hospitals were fairly comfortable, and and the proof is in the pudding that nobody was going to find them if they didn't do it. Um, Mm -hmm. So until somebody gets busted, then, you know, why do it? I mean, I'll be honest. I, I haven't been on a highway without traffic on it in my life that I didn't drive at least seven or eight miles over the speed limit because I know I'm never going to get a ticket. Right. You know?
1: Another wrench that I suppose gets thrown into is that the rates vary between uh, different insurance companies. If you're a Blue Cross uh, customer, your what you might pay will be different than a United or a Cigna or an Aetna customer.
3: Well, and that's one of the, yeah. That's one of the other difficult questions they get is well, why do you know why do you sell this service to Blue Cross for five hundred dollars, and you charge Cigna six hundred dollars, and you charge Aetna two hundred? You know, I mean, why is that? Um, why are those negotiated rates different? The other thing the hospitals really don't necessarily want public information is each of the carriers knowing that, you know, so if one carrier could say, hey, why do you love this other carrier more than right. me? I want yep. their rate. Um, mm-hmm. uh, all of that creates problems within this whole system. I'm glad
1: you mentioned enforcement and fines because it's this is one of the more interesting things because of other stuff that we've dealt with at Fulgrip Strategies, other stuff you and I have talked about with the way things get enforced, and that's that this falls under the Department of Health and Human Services, which right now is under Secretary Javier Becerra. And he was asked about this on NBC News a couple of weeks ago uh, when they were talking about this issue and how they have been enforcing uh, the price transparency rules for hospitals.
0: The Federal Department of Health and Human Services enforces the rule and can fine hospitals up to $5,000 a day for being in violation.
2: We will do ro- robust enforcement.
0: HHS sure Secretary Javier Becerra promised accountability for hospitals at his confirmation. The buck stops with you. You're the secretary. Have you issued any fines?
2: We have issued several hundred
1: warnings. Uh, we have to go through the process.
0: I think a lot of people's complaint is that this is a federal law, but it has no teeth.
1: Well, th- remember, those teeth just grew out. No
0: fines issued yet. Becerra says he needs the public's help to get non compliant hospitals to follow the rules,
2: helping
1: people like the deans make informed decisions. Can you assure those people that in the future there is going to be a different way of doing things? There already is a different way of doing things. We just have to to accelerate it so everyone knows it. There's got to be a new sheriff in town. And you're telling them you're the new sheriff? Well, if I can implement this the right way, then I'll walk into Dodge and try to do something about it. So again, that's Secretary Javier Becerra, Secretary of Health and Human Services on NBC News. I had to laugh when I heard that the first time, Ron, because he's asked about how many fines he sent out, which they can fine $5,000 a day. And he said, "Oh well, we sent out hundreds of warnings. Uh-huh. Warnings clearly don't do much." Right. Um, are we seeing other issues right now with the Department of Health and Human Services where they could be enforcing rules and they are not?
3: Yeah, absolutely. First of all, Health and Human Services historically has not been a an entity that is um, well equipped to do fines and enforcement. Right. I mean, you look at somebody like the IRS. Well, they got mm-hmm. it down. They know what they're doing. Um, the Health and Human Services just hasn't been in that sort of mode. But to answer your question, yeah, I mean, Health and Human Services is the entity that should be enforcing um, provisions in the No Surprises Act, and they aren't. Um, one of those was- And even tried the, to re-change, They tried to change the law as well. Oh, yeah. They tried to change the law. But I mean, as, as simple as the law was very clear that payers- had to publish and make public information their qualifying payment amount rate last mm-hmm. July, and it's still not available. And there's been no fines. So um, part of it is Health and Human Services really doesn't hasn't been structured well to do that. They don't have the mechanisms. Part of it is they really don't have the stomach to do it either for the No Surprises Act or you know for um, you know the hospital transparency piece. And one thing to to understand, I mean, people say, well, why not? That's what their job is. Well, yeah, that's their job, but they're also politicians. You know, we in this country, people talk about how powerful the NRA is as a lobbying entity, and it is. I mean, it's a very powerful lobbying entity. Okay. Last year, the NRA spent $3.3 million on lobbying expenditures. It's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. The American Hospital Association spent $22 million on lobbying. So um, is it surprising that nobody wants to start slapping hospitals with fines? No, not at all. Right. Do you you think, okay, well, you heard Secretary Becerra there talked about
1: how, well, this law just just got its teeth grown out, which Mm -hmm. isn't really true. It's been around now for a year and a half, or at least this particular portion of the law has been around for a year and a half. Do you think he sets a bad precedent for when, you know, take for example, Medicare for all, you know, we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago yeah. under Bernie Sanders plan, the secretary of health and human service has an incredible amount of power to dictate a lot of different things and to enforce different rules and quality control measures. If they're slacking off on price transparency rules, what does it say about what would happen to our health care if something like no surprises or excuse me, if something like uh, Medicare for all is passed?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, it, it it obviously raises the question of well, if you if you can't do you know enforcement on this, how would you do enforcement on something bigger? Um, now, I will say that when we're talking about Medicare for all, the power that Health and Human Services has is not as much a penalty and enforcement power, is a decision making and in a, a policy setting power. Right. Now, I will tell you they're much better at trying to set policy than they are mm-hmm. enforcing laws. They like setting mm-hmm. policy, so. That almost scares me a little bit more about you know Medicare for all because that feeds into what they want to do and what they're good at. Um, as far as enforcing you know penalties for you know if people violate Medicare for all, uh, they wouldn't be very good at that either. It's just not who they are. Do you think? Um-
1: do you think this is more at the feet of Health and Human Services in general, or is it at the feet of hospitals, or is it the feet of the particular leadership we have right now for Health and Human Services, D- the general non-compliance that we have with this provision of the Affordable Care Act?
3: Um, you know, I think, it, to be honest with you, I think it's understood amongst all three. Okay. You know, uh, the hospitals have no fear of being fined on this, and they know they're not going to be fined. Um, the administration knows that they can't get away with finding them or else they're going to just get hammered in the next election. And, and whatever the next administration is, whether it's Republican or Democrat, they're going to know the same thing. Um, you know, Entities like you know, the American Hospital Association are not the only ones. A lot of entities are like this. You see these entities that donate almost equally to both parties. Well, they do that for a reason. Their position isn't a party-centric position. It's a, I don't care who's in power, you better pay attention to me because I want to keep the status quo or keep what I've got. So, um, you know, I I don't personally, if I had to bet, I think we could have the same conversation a year, two years, five years from now, and there wouldn't be hardly any more transparency than there is today.
1: Earlier, I mentioned uh, the name of the columnist. uh, Her name is uh, Cynthia Fisher, and she is the founder and chairman of patientrightsadvocate.org. Um, and the former CEO of Viacord. Uh, she's the one that was, she was featured both in this NBC News story, not not in the clip we shared, but she also had a column on realclearhealth.com. And we'll be sure to share both of those with you uh, in the show notes for this week's program at flatlining.net. I wanna move on now to uh, something that's slightly probably less interesting to the average person, but I, I think it's interesting nonetheless because it's a, it's a health insurance option out there. And that's some uh, data that came out not too long ago about uh, health savings accounts. And um, Ron, I know we've talked about it before, but could you just give us another brief um, rundown of, of how you know
3: how these health savings accounts work and where they came from? So health savings accounts were an idea that um, we know that um, patient responsibility, even with insurance, is still significant and going up. And so it was this idea about, well, can't we create a way for patients to use sort of pre-tax money to pay for their health expenditures, what they have to pay after the insurance company pays? And and wouldn't it be a way for them to sort of almost save up? And I remember there were stories about, you know, a young family just starting out and they say, hey, let's start putting money into a health savings account because, you know, next year we want to have a baby and that might be expensive and we'll have the money all saved up and it'll be pre-tax. You know, isn't this a wonderful thing? And so they created these sort of HSAs or health savings accounts where you can put money in, use it to pay for a variety of medical services, and and save the tax part of it. And, and it all sort of sounds good. Um, unfortunately, it just doesn't really work that well.
1: What does the mean? What's the main reason why it doesn't work that well for for the average person?
3: Well, it, it's a lot like. Um, why people talk about well why aren't more people putting more money into their 401k or why do americans have a hard time with savings in general um because typically the people who would benefit most from having a nest egg of savings or a a bigger 401k contribution or a health savings account are the lower end of the income stream they're the people who have the the least amount of ability to save you know they're they're if you're scrambling from paycheck to paycheck, you know, pulling even 50 bucks out to put into an HSA, mm-hmm. you know, it hurts. Um, right. And to be honest, and this is not being at all derogatory, but the people at the lower economic end of the spectrum also probably have the least understanding of, you know, what this means from a benefit from a tax perspective, et cetera. So, which is, like I said, same thing with 401k. So the people who really could use it the most are the people in the not in a position to be able to do it. And the people, there have been studies that show that the people who tend to do it tend to be in the higher end of the economic spectrum, um, which means they probably do not need it. I mean, they're still getting the benefit from it. And so there's been a lot of criticism, to HSAs to say they don't help, they're, they're too convoluted. And the people they do help, it's like giving another tax break to the rich, um, so to speak. So, And they just haven't been that widely adopted because of all those reasons.
1: One of the things that we that I came across while I was getting ready for this program today was was a study in the Health Affairs journal that says that they um, one of the reasons they haven't been successful is that non HSA qualifying plans because you have to have a um, sure. a high deductible health insurance plan to qualify to, to to get a health savings account there have been more non HSA qualifying plans that have significant deductible increases over the past recent years. Um, Additionally, they they want what the people who wrote the study for, were arguing for was they want they were trying to get rid of the regressive tax break, um, for HSAs. Do you think that that's a main reason why they don't work as much? Is that there are more and more non qualifying plans that that people are signing up for?
3: You know, I think there's um, I think that's absolutely a contributing factor. There's a bunch of reasons for it. I mean, but that that you know that also contributes to it. I mean, when you really think about it, other than the pre savings, if you will. And and there's a solution to this problem, and I'll get to that in a second. The simplest thing would be to say, look, from dollar one, all healthcare expenditures are deductible at the end of your tax year. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just add right. up your healthcare bills. That's a deduction just like your mortgage interest. If you wanted to really make healthcare a, a non taxed event, and then people, you know, when they paid for it at the end of the year they could, you know, get a chunk of that money back as a tax deduction. Now, then somebody who's going to argue, well yeah, but that means they haven't saved ahead of time. They've got to have the money to pay for it, um, and then get it back on their taxes later. There's a lot of new mechanisms out there, very easy mechanisms to finance healthcare debt. Mm-hmm. You know, there's whole companies that have, have come about and saying, "Oh, here's our you know paying for kind of methodology to finance your your surgery coinsurance." Mm-hmm. So um, that would be a much easier way if all you wanted to do was make medical expenses you know a non-taxed event.
1: In addition to that, I've noticed hospitals seem to be signing up for that as well. Sure. When they send you a bill, it's, hey, we set up a payment plan on our website as opposed to paying, you know, all at once. Exactly. Um, One of the responses to that study was from uh, Thomas Miller, who's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And he had some um, interesting ideas for why, to make, you know, to either make HSAs more palatable or to make... um, I guess to get more use out of HSAs is is what he was arguing for. And I wanted to run them by you. Uh, The first was making theoretical information about cost and quality of healthcare services more accessible, which to me, as I was reading, it sounds a lot like the price transparency we were just talking about.
3: Yeah, it is. I mean, I think one of the things that Miller was talking about, and he's a real bright guy, is, you know, you don't have to get all the way down into the weeds of each CPT code that we talked about. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard him talk before about, you know, Make it like the, and this is probably aged me because I don't think it's out there anymore, the Zagat Guide for Dining. You know, there used to be these books where you could look at a restaurant and and it would tell you how many stars it was on quality. And, mm-hmm. and you'd see like one to four dollar signs on how much right. cost. You know, you could take hospitals and in general for certain things or in general and say, hey, that's a four star hospital on quality and it's a four dollar sign. Um, or that's a three star hospital, but a two dollar sign, you know, and help people sort of navigate well that hospital is probably cheaper to have my baby and, and you know, I'm going to go there instead.
1: Another uh, idea he had was putting caps on tax advantages across all health plans. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about that?
3: Again, it makes it more, you know, ubiquitous and and easier to do and it doesn't exclude stuff. I, you know, I think that would clearly help make these things more functional. Uh,
1: another one he brought up was uh, index uh, HSA cost-sharing floors and ceilings based on the rates of healthcare spending – and not inflation, which would um, make things interesting right now, I suppose, if they were to implement that.
3: Yeah, but you know, right now is a, a huge anomaly. In right. general, <laughs> you know, that would help. And it's it's a, economically, it's a smart thing to take a look at. It's like index to the thing you're tying to, not to something else. Um, and that's really what he's getting at there. And finally, his fourth point that I thought was probably the most generic
1: that could be brought up across the board for a lot of things was just lower tax rates across the board and cut out targeted tax breaks.
3: Yeah. I mean, this gets into this sort of keep it simple, stupid principle. Right. You know, one of the arguments people have about the U.S. tax code is it's incredibly complex. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of easier ways to do it, even if you want to, you know, keep a regressive tax or anything like that. I mean, it's, you know, we've got complexity almost for complexity's sake. And so he's saying, well, geez, just... Lower the dang tax rates and cut the targeted stuff, and there now you've you've helped a lot more people.
1: Well, we'll have this uh, critique of, of HSA's available on the show notes for today's show, as well as Thomas Miller's response to it. Um, they'll be both linked in the description of this program and at Flatlining.net. Uh, I want to switch now and spend the the rest of our time on probably, well, to me, what was the most interesting topic I came across, and that was the agreement between uh, Senator Rand Paul a he would call himself a small l libertarian, a Republican from Kentucky, and Senator Bernie Sanders, independent from Vermont, agreeing this week in Congress about importing drugs from other countries in order to bring the costs down for uh, Americans. Before we hop into what exactly they were saying, can you tell me quickly, Ron, what is the main reason why we restrict importation of drugs from other countries?
3: Well, there's there's been a lot of reasons people talk about. It. I mean, one is a, a quality reason. Um, you know, we all have sort of heard or whatever the sort of the horror stories about you know somebody traveled to Mexico and I could get the drug cheap there. Well, you may not get be getting the drug you're thinking you're getting, mm-hmm. or it may not be the of the quality level that it is or things. There's a lot more protections we have in this country around drugs than a lot of other countries have. So that's always been one of the reasons. Now. One of the other reasons is it's, you know, these pharmaceuticals are protected under copyrights or basically trademarks, if you will, patents. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that importing from another area could violate those patents. I wanna
1: play now, well, uh, before, I, before I play that, the, the what they were suggesting in this particular bill, and part of it is this is part of a larger bill that does need to be passed in order to fund the FDA. And this was an mm-hmm. amendment that they wanted to throw in. Um, the, what it does is it allows drugs to be imported specifically from Canada and the United Kingdom for mm-hmm. two years. And then after that two year trial periods up evaluating other countries as well. Um, and in Sanders, I don't think I have this particular clip here, but Sanders did take issue with the idea about safety because he pointed out that our, you know, our Canadian and, and European allies care about safety as much as the United States does. And Rand Paul did point out. Uh, that he would be comfortable with this coming from Europe, but definitely not someplace like China, where they're not transparent about how they do um, safety protocols and and stuff like that. Rand Paul took this more from a free market standpoint, and I want to play his speech as he spoke in support of this, if you don't mind. Uh, It's about two minutes, and we'll go ahead and play that uh, now. This is Rand Paul speaking in um, a committee in the Senate supporting Senator Sanders' amendment to import drugs from Canada and the United Kingdom.
0: You know, I think that, uh, really, we need to look at a policy, and this is a policy that sort of unites, uh, I think, many on both sides of the aisle, the outrage over high price of medications. Um, I don't support price controls, and I worry about some of the consequences of foreign price controls, but I think we should pay attention to why so many people in our country are so upset about prices so we don't actually institute price controls in our country. Americans pay the highest prescription drug prices on Earth. A study last year by Rand Corporation reported that Americans pay 255% of what the British pay and 258% of what the French pay for the exact same prescriptions. For brand name originator drugs, the price differential was even higher, 349%. Americans are paying more for medicine because we don't have a free market globally. Since other countries have price controls and we don't, drug companies segment their markets and charge higher prices here to make up for the price caps they face everywhere else. That's how drug manufacturers maximize their profits. Maximizing profits isn't a bad thing. Drug makers invest these profits in R&D to develop new drugs that will cure diseases that have no cure today. And that literally saves people's lives. But it also means that Americans have to foot the entire bill for these R&D costs, and in effect subsidize cheap drugs for everybody else around the world. This country has a relatively free market, and I want to keep it this way. I don't want price, and cro- price controls to be the reactionary way we respond here, but I think worldwide competition is one way to drive prices down. I think trading with other countries is a good idea. I think of an approval of drugs, we should internationalize the approval of drugs as well, so we could have more of an international marketplace for drugs. But if Americans keep paying double or triple what everybody else on Earth pays for the exact same drugs, I think eventually people will clamor for price controls here, and that will be the end result. I would rather try a more open and free market, a worldwide market that allows more competition, and I encourage my colleagues to vote yes on Sanders 1.
1: Ron, I want to get your reaction uh, to this real quick, and I guess starting with because he had a lot of points in there that of what I want to get to, but I guess starting with um, his uh, assertion that that's why we get we pay more for drugs in the United States is that because they are controlled in other countries, so they um, maximize their profits here.
3: Is that correct? Oh, very true. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so.
1: He's correct in saying then that, that, as we talked about before, that those profits do get reinvested into R&D. And if we do start you know clamping down on those, we will have less development and research for new drugs.
3: Yeah. I mean, and we've talked about this a lot before. I mean, uh, developing a new drug is a crapshoot. I mean, uh, and the vast majority of drugs they start trying to develop at some point fail that rigorous process. So it, it's like... Uh, you know, spending a lot of, um, you know, a lot of time and energy, um, uh, looking for gold. I mean, I, I see mm-hmm. these shows on TVs where they're just huge earth movers and they're moving tons of dirt looking for small amounts of gold. Boy, you better find some because it's expensive to, to move that much dirt. Right. Um, and if you don't have that potential home run, um, you would move all that dirt. You wouldn't. You would invest all that. So, if we start ratcheting down the profit of of drugs, we'll start ratcheting down you know, some of the R and D. Absolutely.
1: So, uh, another point he had was, if we don't offer, uh, I, you, we talked earlier about uh, copyright infringement, and and that's a something we should take seriously because it's. A, I I think we ought to take that seriously because I know other countries don't, and I think we should stand up and, and take that seriously. Do you think that? Putting that aside, though, do you think that actually importing drugs from Canada or from the United Kingdom will lower costs for the average patient going to the hospital, the average patient getting their their insulin, for example?
3: Well, it may, but then you've got to ask yourself, what are the other side effects? You know, there's... And I've talked about this before. In, in, in economics, there's a pr- principle called "ceteris paribus, all other things being equal. And it's trying to stutter, study economic markets by holding everything else constant so you can play with one variable. But we know that that doesn't happen. When you start pushing somewhere, something else gets pushed. So, you know, let's play this out. Let's And I'll take the Rand Paul. You want a free market? Okay, well then, fine. You can import from anywhere. Mm-hmm. But then what happens when a drug company says, look, um... Canada is sending our drug that we developed back to the U.S. and undercutting our price, and we don't want that to happen. So we're not going to sell to Canada anymore. It's not okay. illegal. They're a right. free drug. They're they're a company. They don't have to sell their product to Canada, and then they tell Great Britain, "Hey, if you start shipping it over here too, we're not selling to you either." Yeah, I know it's a life-saving drug that you know that uh, cures cancer. Or I know this is the best drug to help somebody with MS, but yeah, I just I'm not going to do that if you're going to play that game. All right, well, is that the side effect we want? Um, What if a a company develops a drug and they don't like what the US is doing and said, fine, we'll sell it elsewhere. We're just not gonna sell it in the US. Um, So you gotta be careful about this whole idea of, I want a free market economy, because then you gotta tell the company they're free to do what they wanna do as well. And we might not like what some of those answers are. Do you think then that um
1: just to play devil's advocate here that if that were the case and say a drug companies ship into canada and then we're buying it from canada and getting the the discount that the canadians are getting do you in it sounds like what you're saying is that you don't think that the drug companies then would turn around and say okay we'll lower our prices here so that we're still competitive or at least lower it to the point where there's not a huge incentive to go buy it from canada or the uh, United Kingdom.
3: yeah no i think you know Th- these are publicly traded companies, most mm-hmm. of them, the drug companies, right. whose mission is to maximize their shareholder's investment. We want them to do that when our, our money for our retirement account is partly tied up in their stock. We like it when our when our 401k goes up. So we want them to do that. It's what they're supposed to do. It's what they're told their board of directors they're going to do. So what I'm saying is they're going to have another a number of other options. Just lowering the price of their drug in the U.S. suddenly starts eating into profits. Or, like I said, are they going to say, look... You know, we sell you know two billion dollars of this drug to Canada. We sell 200 billion to the U.S. It's actually financially more viable for me to cut Canada off at the knees right. um, and end this pipeline than it is to to lower my price in the U.S. If that's the scenario, as much as it may be distasteful to us, that's exactly what that company could, should do because their goal is to maximize their shareholders' investment. You know, they're not charitable organizations. Mm -hmm. So that's my point of it. You've got to be really careful about the unintended consequences of just saying, well, let's just buy it over there. Well, then what's the drug company going to do? What's the response to that?
1: So it sounds like for the average consumer, this and probably for the average voter as well, it sounds like a great idea. Um, But there are unintended consequences that could happen. For doing this, like what you said, it would you know, it would could stop selling to Canada, and then we can only buy it at the United States rate. Right? Which then, if we're the only buyer, they can kind of demand what the price is without uh, right.
3: without unless there's some sort of cost control measures in place. Right. Which I but did not want to talk. To, go ahead. And just think, and think about this. Right. Think about a different scenario. Let's. And I'm not saying this is the right solution. Right. But what if the proposal, rather than that, was to say, look drug manufacturer, what we're gonna do in the US is we're gonna take whatever income you make by selling to a country that is buying it that more than X percent below the price you sell it here. Okay, We're gonna take that income and we're gonna tax at a corporate profit rate of 80%. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now you're not gonna make money by selling to Canada if the price you sell to them is more than X percent lower than what you sell to us. I'm just painting a spirit. Well, now you might create a center for that company to go to Canada and say, look, change your laws or else I can't sell to you. You know, Mm -hmm. now I've got an incentive to try to push up the price of Canada. And if they do that, that probably lowers the price here overall. Um, in in some ways, I almost look at this at the same way of when people get, and I, I, I'm upset by it too. You're upset by the price of gas in the, in this country right now. Mm -hmm. I got five bucks a gallon. Okay. Well, you know that the, price of gas in Kuwait is about a buck twenty a gallon. Right. And in Hong Kong, it's $11. Yeah. You know, we're at about that midpoint, really, when you think about it. And I'm sure that the people in Hong Kong would like Kuwait to pay more so they could pay less. And, it, you know, the point is this happens in a lot of things all over the world. We just are hyper-focused on it on drugs. And you got to be careful about your solution because you might not like the other consequences.
1: Mm-hmm and you know it's, it's something i've mentioned before both here and in other places as well is that we have to remember that other countries like canada um, great britain the rest of the european union they have a very different understanding of what freedom looks like in general mm. and especially what a free market economy looks like so for them putting a cap on drug prices is not a problem it's not a you know to, to us it seems more of to me to us it seems more of an of a i would almost argue a moral thing of is it fair for the government to step in and put a price on, you know, a, a, determining that something is now a public good instead of a private good? Mm-hmm. And they just don't have that sort of distinction. But it sounds like because all these other countries were much more comfortable doing that, we are kind of the last to step up to the table. And so we kind of got the short end of the stick on this one.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about talking about
1: price controls, I want to save that for a second because I believe it was Senator Romney that accused Bernie Sanders of calling this a different form of price control, which I think you and I would both agree with Senator Sanders that mm-hmm. is this isn't really price control because what's going to happen is is the unintended consequences that we just talked about mm-hmm. and that we're not telling the drug companies you have to charge us this amount uh, and here's a Senator Sanders' response to that.
2: I would look at it a little bit differently. Uh, Senator Romney. We are the odd guy out in terms of healthcare around the world. Every other major country on earth, as you know, has in one form or another a national healthcare system, which has to purchase a whole lot of prescription drugs. And what they do in Canada and in UK and elsewhere, different ways, is they sit down with the drug companies and they negotiate prices. They may call that price controls, but I think if you're purchasing, you're a business guy. If you're purchasing a lot of product, you sit down and you negotiate. <clears throat> And that's what these countries do. We don't do it, and I think that's a serious problem. So you may consider it hitching a ride in a sense. I see it as allowing countries to do what they consider to be best for their people, and we do what's best for our people taking advantage of what they have done. What is your uh, initial response to that, Ron?
3: Well, um, in one respect, theoretically, Bernie's right. I mean, they, they, they do sit down and negotiate the rate with the drug company. Now, Canada's negotiating leverage in what they buy compared to what the U.S. is negotiating leverage would buy if we were exclusively, you know, if our government was exclusively buying drugs and had a national system, is an entirely different thing. Remember, we spend more money on healthcare than every other country in the world except two right. others. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, so yeah. um, it wouldn't really be a negotiation. I mean, our our, our federal government would say we're going to pay you this much for this drug, and and the manufacturer would have to take it um or or not sell to us um and so it would be a very different negotiation than let's say canada or great britain because of the the leverage side of it so getting rid of the us in our current system and i'm not saying the current system is great it's got a, it's got huge flaws and this is one of them would create a whole different environment um and in, in all likelihood would significantly reduce the amount of R r d um Uh, on expensive drugs, just because Mm -hmm. there wouldn't be the guaranteed payoff there, Um, and so nobody would want to devote the money to it.
1: You know, I I have two thoughts I think we we ought to discuss a little bit as we talk about drugs, and the first is that in the U.S., um, who is the primary purchaser of the drug? Is it the patient, is it the hospital, or is it the insurance provider?
3: Well, in the U.S., it's you know primarily the government for their stuff, you know Medicare, Medicaid, and the insurance company. I mean, the the, the patient pays a portion of that, mm-hmm. but it's it's the the price that's going to happen for that drug is typically you know driven by what the insurance company or the uh, the federal government's going to pay.
1: And and so for most of us that are on an employee sponsored plan, our insurance company have they negotiated a a, a rate with that. Uh, with that drug company, or is it more of a hey, this is the price of it, and this is just what we pay?
3: No, they they've negotiated rate, right? and, and there's whole called PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, that do a lot of this mm-hmm. work. And they know. now, I will say that you know, um, the payers or the government's ability, the payer's ability to negotiate a rate on something like a statin, which there are multiple ones out there, and they've been out there forever, and they're off patent, et cetera. Um, is much higher leverage on the payer side than something that's brand new, um, mm-hmm. that's still under patent. There are some, you know, single source drug um, scenarios out there that, that that's the only one you can buy for that. Um, and those are the things that get very expensive. And that's where that payback comes. You know, the drug companies know that if they get a new drug, their, their initial payback happens in those first several years. And after that, they make profit. But not significant profit, because once it goes off patent, you know, then it's Katie bar the door and there's multiple options.
1: Right. So right now, one of President Biden's main, well, I don't know if I'd call it one of his main um, policy agendas, but one of his policy agendas that he's brought up on a regular basis is is trying to have uh, centers for Medicare and Medicaid negotiate drug prices with the drug companies, uh, similar to how Veterans Affairs does that. Do you think that the negotiating power of of CMS and of Medicare would be enough to drive down the costs in general, or would that just make it more expensive for everyone who's not on Medicare?
3: Well, first of all, I, I think we're sort of, um, we're missing the point in the drug costs problem. Okay? okay. Assuming that we don't want to just get rid of this idea of patents. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, because really, Patents are what are driving up the cost of the drug. Now, we've talked about if you get rid of the patents, nobody's going to want to put in the R&D money for a drug. Okay. Um, and we've got patents in a lot of other areas. I mean, I was saw, saw the other day that and this is a weird aside, but um, the woman who developed the technology behind Spanx, those things that you know women make them, you know, their tummies go away, etc., mm-hmm. made a billion dollars on that patent. Okay. So we've got patents all over the place that raise the cost of things. But mm-hmm. assuming we're not going to really get rid of that, the problem is, in my opinion, that we've got a game that's set up to highly reward increases in quality of the drug, even if they're limited increases, um, without any really regard to cost. So, if I can make a drug that is improves somebody's cancer survival rate by, you know, five percent, I can make a ton of money on that drug. Okay. Rather than setting up like happens in a lot of other industries to say, look, we'll create a mechanism to where if you can make something almost as good and a lot cheaper, you're going to win. I mean, we see in a lot of other industries, you know, things, you know, people follow on to a discovery. I mean, when smartphones were first developed then everybody could produce one and maybe it wasn't quite as good as the iPhone and I'm just picking one, Mm -hmm. but it was close and it was half the price and they got market share. Yeah. And that made the iPhone drop their price. So we haven't got this scenario where there's this competition involved to sort of get, get to a more effective price. It's purely a competition of if I can produce a little bit more quality, I can raise the price a lot more. Right. And, and that's the point. Doing away, you know, doing the rest of this stuff of, of, well, Medicare negotiating is all just, you know, for lack of a better term, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Right. Might it help a little bit? But it's still going to see this upward trend because we haven't addressed the root problem.
1: So then, I guess here's here's a question for you, and, and it could be, you know, just an observation. So because you have, you know, for we'll take over-the-counter drugs for the example, and and I'm just thinking of Prilosec right now because it's one that I've purchased recently. Mm-hmm. You know, there's you can buy Prilosec or you can buy the generic, which is available right. at. Kroger or Walgreens or wherever you get. And it's basically, it's the exact same drug, but it's got right. a different label on it. What keeps those brain name brands still available for things like over-the-counter medication when there is a generic that is available half the price? Is it simply the fact that there's a brand name and it's marketing? Or is it more the fact that it is being subsidized by other drugs that that, that, that company is also producing?
3: Well, Or is it a third it's, option? It's more of a, it's, it's a brand name. It's marketing. Okay. Because, and drugs are a perfect example when you talk about it. Class A generics, by law, have to be the exact same, you know, molecule, mm-hmm. okay? So, it's not like, well, you know, it's like, a, you know, it's not like Coke or Pepsi or, you know, you see that off-brand cola in yeah. a, you know, a discount, where it really does taste different. They're yeah. the same thing. Um, and I talked about statins before. Lipitor, okay? Everybody knows the name Lipitor, mm-hmm. okay? Well, the generic version of it is a torvastatin. It's the same damn thing. Average retail price for Lipitor right now, six hundred and two dollars and thirty-three cents, twenty milligram dosage. Average real t- retail price for a torvastatin, twenty milligram dosage, seventy-seven dollars and forty-four cents. It's the same thing, you know. Right. <laughs> but some people, and i it's okay. I'm, you know, we're consumers. So if we want to do that, think well. I got to have Lipitor. I mean, I've listened to people in pharmacy say, I don't want that generic stuff. I want the good drug. Well, okay. So right. a lot of that's just sort of a, and there's examples of that all over the place on things where people, it's the same factory that produces something. They put a different name on it, sell it for half the price. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fine. Um, but that's primarily a marketing thing.
1: I mean, and I would argue too that that's just one of the, beautiful things we have about America is that we can we have the ability to make that choice if we want to buy the name brand or buy the generic which is either exactly the same or very very similar in 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 many cases
3: yeah I mean I heard somebody once say that the one of the beauties of freedom is you are free to be an idiot And, and that's okay you know that's that's great uh you know you make your own mistakes Uh, I do want to think
1: talk about one other thing I have, I have one other topic after this, but I have one other thing that I want to talk about that Rand Paul mentioned, just because it was kind of a weird thing that I never expected. I would hear Rand Paul say, because Rand Paul is a very, like I said earlier, he's a small L libertarian. Mm -hmm. He's not a big fan of things like the United Nations, the world health organization, um, was not a big fan of sending money to Ukraine. He's, he's very much more interested in, in keeping his focus here in the United States. Um, Take that however you want. However, in this two-minute speech he had, he had the idea of a international drug agency that would do approvals so that all the safety standards would be the same. One, I think this is weird to come from Rand Paul, of all people. But two, what do you think about that, and do you think that that would be worthwhile— Um, because this is going this is going back to the safety conversation we had at the beginning of of this talk about importing drugs. Do you think that that would be worthwhile? Um and would it help actually create a quote unquote free marketplace for for drugs internationally?
3: So a couple thoughts. Um one, it depends on how high that hurdle is. Okay. Right. Um we in this country have an extremely high hurdle on drug approval. Um and and for safety. Um, there are other countries I'll be honest with you that given the the, the status of the country couldn't afford that right. um, they need to get drugs you know out to their people because if they' if you're in a country in parts of Africa and other parts of the third world, you know you don't have the luxury of waiting until you're 100% sure this drug is safe you know um, so, that that's one issue. How high is the hurdle going to be, and w- will it be so high that you'll you'll have other countries that suddenly lose access to things that they desperately need? Um, and so I, you know, this idea of a universe, getting the, the all the world to agree on one body, psh, that ain't happening. But the other thing I find, and this is just this is conjecture on my part, uh, is um, when I first heard that from Rand Paul, it sort of made sense to me. Understand that Rand Paul is an ophthalmologist who. Mm-hmm is not board certified by any entity in this country that recognizes that any insurance company recognizes. Okay. He created his own test to get himself certified and nobody recognizes it. Rand doesn't like governmental control. And he didn't like the idea that there was a test that he was going to have to take that somebody else controlled to tell him whether he was a good ophthalmologist or not. And so he created his own. Well, I, I think this is a little bit of backlash on the U.S. medical industry. He doesn't like the FDA. He doesn't like anybody, you know, in that stuff. He's never liked them. Mm-hmm. And, and I personally, I think that's just him going. Well, you know, we should do away with the whole FDA and drug approval stuff and right. just make some universal approval. Um, and I don't think he really even thought about the fact that, man, I thought you didn't like, you know, world governmental things. So, I, I, I that again, conjecture on my part. I think that's part of what he's doing.
1: No, that, that's fair. And that, that makes sense. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned um, quality and we almost went the whole show without talking about COVID, but I'm going to bring it up. Um, we have, as you mentioned, very high bars for things in the United States, and that was not thrown away with the COVID vaccines. They followed the same bar that other vaccines had to follow. But you compare it to the other countries, like, for example, we talked earlier about China. Uh, China has... To my knowledge, refused to import any vaccines that were not created by China or Russia, mm-hmm. and from my understanding, those vaccines are significantly less effective than what we have developed here in in the United States. Um, so you're right that there would be it would be interesting to see what we we determine is the is the bar that everyone's going to hold to. A- another point to that though is I did notice because I have upcoming travel uh, that other countries. So in the U.S., we you have to have a vaccine for the places that are requiring a vaccine you have to have one that was approved by the fda whereas places like canada you could have one that was approved by the canadian government or one that was approved by the world health organization which it would surprise me if those differed in any way because Mm -hmm. they probably would have i think canada adopted whatever the world health organization Mm -hmm. uh, adopted at the time but that's just an, uh, an anecdotal point about you know safety and having to get that bar that the us doesn't even go to the bar of, of the world health organization which has approved extra vaccines that mm-hmm. are not approved here in the united states
3: yep yep we have our own rules and 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 people sometimes legitimately argue that drugs are too slow to get to market here because mm-hmm. we go to that extra nth of safety um but the counter argument that is we haven't had nearly the problem that other countries have had with finding out after the fact that drugs aren't safe and then all that you know issue. And you're right, the COVID vaccines, the, the ones that have been approved for this country are much more effective than the Russian vaccine or the Chinese vaccine, um, significantly so.
1: The last thing I want to talk about in our last few minutes is um, something that you mentioned earlier, the healthcare lobby and uh, HHS and how much money that they pour into elections every year. Uh, particularly this year in a midterm year and i and i want to start by asking you can we can pit these two groups to against each other so you had senator mitt romney and and richard burr from from north carolina and keeping in mind richard burr is not running for reelection who are both opposed to the sanders amendment of importing drugs from other countries and then you had on the other side you have rand paul and senator sanders of those two groups which would you say without looking it up yet which would you say gets more money from the drug companies, or which of those senators, I suppose, if you were to rank them from least to greatest gets the most so, money from the drug companies?
3: So the, and, and I and I haven't looked it up and I don't know. So logic would try to tell me that, well, you know, the two senators supporting um, this idea against the, the Sanders amendment, you know, would be the ones supporting the drug companies. They get more money from drug companies. And that would be my sort of guess without looking it up. Mm-hmm. Is that that um, Romney and and Burr, the two Republicans, sort of defending drug profits, get more money from the drug companies?
1: Well, collectively, you would be correct. Collectively, between them, in, in and I'm looking at specifically this mm-hmm. election cycle, and that's yeah. why I say keep in mind that Richard Burr is not running for re-election. They have both pulled in about sixteen thousand uh, dollars between the two of them for um, from different drug companies. Richard uh, Richard Burr has pulled in eight thousand. Romney's pulled in eight thousand. Uh-huh. Senator Sanders has not pulled in any money from drug companies uh-huh. ever, and that's one of his campaigning points. Every few years, is that he does not take money from the drug companies. And but Rand Paul, interestingly enough, has taken the most of this election cycle uh-huh. at fourteen thousand five hundred so far, and with the most of that coming from Pfizer. So I I find that an interesting thing that the person who has gotten the most. Money from the drug companies out of this group of four is the one that's agreeing with Senator Sanders of, hey, let's just go buy these from other countries, um, and I'm I'm curious what you might think about that, what your response might be. You
3: know, my guess is this, um, sort of trying to piece together why would this happen, et cetera. First of all, you know, I think both Bernie and Rand knows that that ain't ever gonna pass, you know, mm-hmm. that that that's not happening. Um, so. There's a lot of politicians who will, if I don't have any danger of it actually happening, yeah, I'll get behind that parade, and march in it, so I get the, you know, I can say, oh, well, I tried. Mm-hmm. Um, that happens a lot, not just on this issue. So my guess is that Rand knows it's not going to pass. He's going to, you know, rah-rah it, and, and he'll get some credit for doing that. Um, and that the reason why he probably does get money is Rand Paul is notorious for being able to gum up the works. Right. I mean he's stopped a lot of things on procedural issues or mm-hmm. I won't agree to that and if you're in a you know a 50 50 Senate well it doesn't take too many people to gum up the works and the drug industry wants the status quo and the best way to keep the status quo is having somebody in there that will just on principle stop things from moving forward and he's done it on other things so that's you know again conjecture on my part but that wouldn't surprise right. me if that's the rationale behind it and uh,
1: this data I'm pulling from is from the uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation. They've uh-huh. got a uh, campaign contributions tracker. Romney, since 2007, has pulled in just under 70,000 uh, from various drug companies. Burr has pulled in over a million since 2007. But you also have to keep in mind he's been in the Senate a lot longer. Uh-huh. And I'm pulling up Rand Paul now, and I just had it, and he went away. So... Let's pull that up here. He's had eighty-four thousand mm-hmm. uh, since since two thousand and seven. Again, most of that being from um, Pfizer and Amgen, right. um, which I would assume probably have manufacturing plants in his um, home state of Kentucky, because uh, that's the uh, reason they don't. why they, they
3: don't. Okay, no, no. Actually, Amgen's is uh, centered in California. Um, Pfizer's not centered. So, and, and but it does point out a couple of things. One, first of all, Senate races are national races when it comes to lobbying money. Right okay, because they're national issues House races are local, but Senate races are national there's a lot of money from other states that flow into important Senate races. The other thing is is like you know like we talked before this is hedging their bets so you know Democrats and Republicans are both getting money from um, you know from uh, drug lobby and drug companies I mean they they play both sides of their role because at different times they may need different of them. Um, you know, there aren't a whole lot of Democrats getting money from the NRA. That's a single party kind of an issue. Right. But things like pharma and hospital, et cetera, and a lot of other issues are, you know, they don't have a party alliance. They want to give to everybody who can help them. Right.
1: And if you're wondering for your piece of uh, midterm trivia, the person who's gotten the most this election cycle is Representative Kathy McMorris Rogers from Washington at $147,000 from uh, a variety of different drug companies. Mm -hmm. She's also the the new um, She's not the favorite freshman, but she's had the biggest jump in this election cycle. Well, Ron, this has been good to talk about some of the things going on in the healthcare world. Uh, and I want to thank you again for sitting down and taking the time to be with us today. You're
3: very welcome. Thank you.
1: The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Folk of Strategies. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Howrigan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.